Hey there. Before we begin this episode, in case you hadn't heard, Based on a True Story has its own Alexa skill now. Just say, Alexa, enable Based on a True Story to enable it. And then you can say things like, Alexa, tell Based on a True Story to play the latest episode. And if you've got a Google Home, don't worry, you can do it there too. Just say, okay, Google, play the latest episode of the Based on a True Story podcast. Check it out and let me know what you think. And now, let's kick off the show. January 20th, 2016 started off as a day like any other. As was usually the case, he arrived at the office a little early. Getting his morning coffee, he sat down at his desk to find a surprise. It was a LinkedIn message from Roger Gayette, the VFX supervisor and second unit director at ILM for the new Star Wars, The Force Awakens movie. He agreed to do an interview for the podcast that following week. Delighted, he shot off a quick thank you to Roger before grabbing his notebook for his 10 o'clock meeting. A few minutes later, he returned to his desk. He sent another message to Roger, this time apologizing that he wouldn't be able to do the interview after all. The podcast was just one of the casualties in a massive downsizing he'd just been a part of. I still remember the roller coaster of emotions in that moment. My immediate focus was figuring out how I'd put food on the table for my family. After getting back on my feet, I was determined to do another podcast, but I wasn't so sure I could wrangle the schedules of artists working on the hottest movies and games like my last one, nor was I sure I could continue as regularly with my co-host and good friend who was also working on that podcast. So I needed to find a way to do a podcast that I could do in my new schedule, the new normal, as it were. That's why, a couple months later, the very first episode of Based on a True Story was released on April 2nd, 2016, to be precise. At the time, when I released the first episode, I wasn't really thinking about what I'd be doing with it a year later, but when the first anniversary rolled around last year, I wanted to do something a little different. Then I realized there's another annual tradition right around this podcast anniversary. I'm speaking, of course, about today, April 1st, or April Fool's Day. So that's why, last year, I decided to play a little April Fool's prank by surprise releasing an episode that's clearly not a movie based on a true story. And instantly, I knew what I would cover. Like countless other Tolkien fans, the Lord of the Rings trilogy are my favorite books. Even though the movies could have been better, they gave us the chance to see the pages come to life in a new way. So the movies hold a special place for me too. Originally, I planned on doing a single episode to cover all three movies, but then, just like what happened when they planned to make a single movie out of all three books, that turned out to be too much for a single episode. Remember, the April Fool's Day episode was on top of creating the regular weekly content. So that's why, one year ago today, the special episode comparing the differences between The Fellowship of the Ring book and movie was released. After it was released, I received a lot of great feedback about that episode. A lot of them were requests to finish the trilogy. Simply put, I couldn't guarantee the podcast would be around another year, since this is a passion project for me and not something funded by a major corporation like a lot of the bigger podcasts out there. Fast forward to today, and while I still can't predict the future to know if this show will be around next year, let's take this one year at a time. 
Before we worry about covering the third movie next year, we need to cover the second movie, The Two Towers. I'm Dan LeFeb, and this is based on a true story. Before we head off to Middle-earth, let's take a little break to set up our two truths and a lie game. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three facts. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. And you want to remember these. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Frodo and Sam weren't released by Faramir. They escaped by Frodo using the ring to become invisible. Number two, it wasn't Gandalf and Eomir who came to the rescue at Helm's Deep. Number three, in the books, Boromir actually died at the beginning of the Two Towers and not at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Okay, now remember those because as you're listening to the story today, you'll find those two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and that means the other one is a lie. It's a simple process of elimination. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. And while I have you here, You want to help to ensure this podcast will stick around for another year. A great way to do that is to become a producer for Based on a True Story. Now, I don't want to make it seem like this podcast is about to end. I definitely have no intention of ending the show. But if there's one thing we all have in common, it's bills. And, like everything, this show is not free to create. And, well, quite honestly, if it comes to choosing to put food on the table for my family or creating this podcast, well, let's just say we can't predict the future when it comes to stuff like that. Thankfully, there are some amazing folks out there who are willing to help keep the lights on here at the show by becoming a producer for Based on a True Story. And there's some other cool benefits too. So if you're interested, hop on over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And with that, Let's compare the classic book with Hollywood's version of The Two Towers. Our story today begins by doing a bit of backtracking. In the last movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, do you remember when Gandalf fights the Balrog in the Mines of Moria? That's just after the part where we see Ian McKellen's version of Gandalf shout, You shall not pass, in a much better voice than I did. (laughs) Then, after crumbling the bridge, the Balrog catches Gandalf's foot, tripping him up, and after whispering, Fly, you fools, to the rest of the Fellowship, Gandalf falls. In the first film, we followed the adventures of the Fellowship as they deal with what they assume is the death of Gandalf. But in The Two Towers, our story begins by following Gandalf's side of that tale. He's falling. Falling. As he falls, Gandalf fights with the Balrog. Cutting to a dark cave, we see a very small light at the top of the screen. That tiny speck is Gandalf and the Balrog, who is huge. So, just gives you an idea, because that tiny speck is them, gives you an idea of how massive this cave is. The sequence ends just as Gandalf and the Balrog hit the water, and then all of a sudden we're shot to Frodo, who awakens with the start, almost like he was dreaming the whole thing. That whole scene was not in the book. Well, not in the Two Towers. Well, not really. (laughs) So, the movie is flashing back to something we saw in The Fellowship of the Ring, of course. 
And while it's true that the whole scene on the bridge of Khazad-dûm was in the Fellowship of the Ring book, the two towers did not start by giving us a peek at what it was like from Gandalf's perspective. The way the book begins is actually something we already saw too. If you listen to the Fellowship of the Ring episode of Based on a True Story, where we focus on comparing the first book with the first movie, you'll know that the very last scene in the first movie is actually the first scene in the second book. Remember when we saw Boromir's death at the end of the first movie? That is actually how the Two Towers book starts. So for the sake of our story today, we'll actually have to hop a little further back to the Fellowship of the Ring movie. In that sequence, Sean Bean's version of Boromir stumbles upon Frodo and Sam when he realizes that the two hobbits plan to leave the Fellowship and make their way to Mordor on their own. Boromir is tempted to take the ring from Frodo. He wants to do it for good reason, to fight back the evil that threatens the race of men. But surely the power of the ring would start to turn Boromir, so he resists the urge. Instead, we see Boromir sacrifice himself for the good of the Fellowship. More specifically, he fights off the Uruk High so that Sam and Frodo can escape. One of the final scenes in the movie is one of the saddest when Boromir is struck down with a number of arrows. Then we see the Uruk High captain, Lurtz, tower over the helpless Boromir. Rushing to the scene just a moment too late, Viggo Mortensen's version of Aragorn kills Lurtz. But it's too late for Boromir, who dies in Aragorn's arms. Well, Lurtz wasn't a real Urk-High captain. He's not in any of the books. But the gist of Boromir's self-sacrifice is pretty accurate. So is the conflict that Boromir went through. Talking to Frodo, Boromir suggested they stop by Minas Tirith on the way to Mordor. It's on the way to Mordor. So Boromir reasons that the men could use the ring to fight off Sauron. Now, when Frodo refused, Boromir chased after him in a rage until, just like we saw in the movie, Boromir realizes what he's doing. It was here that Frodo realized that the ring was having an effect on the fellowship, not just him, but on everybody else. He couldn't stay. So he determined to take the ring on his own. Of course, we know Sam ended up going with him. In the book, he did this by following Frodo and swimming out to the boat, almost drowning in the process. And that's how The Fellowship of the Rings book ends. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And... It couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. 
and it'll really help the show. True story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Then, with the rest of the fellowship trying to find Frodo, Aragorn hears Boromir's horn blow. That is how The Two Towers, the book, begins. The book follows Aragorn here, so we don't really see Boromir's side of the story. But when Aragorn sees Boromir, he finds him surrounded by scores of dead orcs. Unfortunately, just like we see at the end of the first movie, Boromir was riddled with black arrows. And just like we see in that sad scene, Aragorn arrives just in time to hear Boromir's final words, a call for Aragorn to save his people in Minas Tirith. Aragorn asks where Frodo went, and Boromir merely smiles, closing his eyes for good. Oh, and one big difference between the death of Boromir that was the touching ceremony that Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli had. They sang songs and sent his body over the falls in a boat, sort of like the honorary Nordic funerals where they would send the body out on a boat and shoot burning arrows at it. We didn't see any of that in the movie. Now that we've got a good idea of how the movies changed the ending of The Fellowship of the Ring and the beginning of The Two Towers changes things from the books, let's hop back to The Two Towers movie. Remember that moment when Frodo startles awake the moment after Gandalf and the Balrog hit the water? Well, after this, we see Frodo and Sam begin their march to Mordor. As they're traveling, this is where they run into Gollum, who is trying to get the ring back. But the hobbits overpower him and tie a rope around his neck, almost dragging him behind them for a while. That all happened, but there's a very important distinction to make. It didn't happen here. By that, what I mean is, it didn't happen here in the timeline of the story. Was Frodo dreaming about Gandalf falling? That seems to be what the movie implies, but the book doesn't at all. In fact, the Two Towers book is broken up into two separate books. So this part where Frodo and Sam capture Gollum is actually in chapter one of book two of the Two Towers. Although some super fans of The Lord of the Rings might argue that it's actually book four. The reason for that is because some people actually prefer to number them in reference to the Lord of the Rings as a whole volume, as a single volume. So The Fellowship of the Ring was actually two books. So the first two books in The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers was the second two, and without getting too ahead of our story, The Return of the King was the final two. So six total books making up three, well, books <laughs> that then make up the whole volume of The Lord of the Rings. My point in mentioning this is because the book keeps these two storylines separate. Book one in The Two Towers is all about Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Merry, and Pippin. Book two is all about Frodo and Sam. So keep that in mind throughout this episode because I'm going to follow the movie's timeline. Since the purpose of this podcast is to compare movies to history and not the other way around, that means in this case, because the movie ties the storylines from book one and book two together, I'm going to do that as well. Oh, and it's worth pointing out that Frodo and Sam did not really tie a rope around Gollum's neck. It was his ankle. That might seem like semantics, but the movie makes it seem like Frodo and Sam were rather sadistic when, in fact, they weren't. 
Going back to the movie, during the battle with the Uruk High that saw Boromir die, the two hobbits, Merry and Pippin, get captured. In the movie, Aragorn knows that Frodo has left the party and insists that they have to work to rescue Merry and Pippin. That's pretty close, but there's a little difference here. In the book, Aragorn isn't so sure about Frodo and Sam's whereabouts. All he knows is that the hobbits are missing, all of them. In their brief conversation before, Boromir told Aragorn that the hobbits had been captured, but he didn't specifically mention how many of them there were. Since Aragorn had sent Boromir to look for Merry and Pippin, they assumed it was them. And without knowing for certain where Frodo and Sam might be, but knowing that Merry and Pippin were in immediate trouble, that's why the rest of the Fellowship decided to follow Dominic Monaghan's character, Merry, and Billy Boyd's character, Pippin. One of the reasons they don't know for sure is because of another difference between the book and the movie. In the movie, Legolas actually sees Frodo and Sam climbing the opposite bank of the river. In the book, though, he didn't. Instead, Aragorn found their footprints, so he assumed that they must have crossed the river, but they weren't seen doing so, so he wasn't sure. Back in the movie, the hunt is on. We see shots of the Urk High with their two prisoners, Merry and Pippin. Then there's shots of the Fellowship tracking them. The seven in the Fellowship that left Rivendell in the first movie has dwindled. Now it's pretty much made up of Aragorn, Orlando Bloom's version of Legolas, and John Rhys Davies' version of Gimli. Cutting back to the Uruk High, holding Merry and Pippin, they get ambushed by Carl Urban's character, Eomer, and a band of the famous Rohirrim horsemen. During the chaos of battle, Merry and Pippin manage to sneak off unnoticed into Fangorn Forest. The basic gist of that is fairly accurate, but there's more to the story. Oh, and as a little side note, I didn't really mention this because it's not in the theatrical release, but in the extended edition of the movie, we see Theodred die. Theodred was Theoden's son and the heir to the throne of Rohan, Eomer's cousin. That's in the book, although technically Theodred was taken back to Edoras for burial in the movie, and he was buried where he died in the book. So in the book, we actually see things from the perspective of Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli first. For that reason, in the book, we don't really know what's happened to Merry and Pippin yet. As the three continued tracking the Uruk High, Aragorn was explaining the horsemen who lived in the lands that they were traveling in, the Rohirrim. Proud and noble men who have true hearts, but, as Aragorn said, they thought Saruman was an ally as well. Who knows what has changed in these times? That's when, in the movie, we see the Rohirrim approach the Fellowship. Well, sort of. A very minor detail, but the book never mentions Aragorn as being the first to hear the thundering hooves first in the book. It was only mentioned that Gimli heard them last. And while we're speaking about minor details, in the movie's version, after... Hearing the Rohirrim approach, the three hide behind some nearby rocks. Then, after the Rohirrim pass, Aragorn steps out and catches their attention by calling to them. That's not how it happened. But the Rohirrim were just as oblivious, perhaps even more so. You see, what really happened was that Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli were sitting still in the field. The riders didn't even seem to notice them, passing right by until it was, as the movie shows, Aragorn who called out to them. Then the next scene we see in the movie is fairly accurate as the Rohirrim circle around the three travelers. It's here, just like what we saw in the movie, when Eomer tells Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli about the ambush of the orcs. Although the movie's version of events is quite a bit more laid back. In truth, Aragorn introduced himself as Strider since he didn't know who Eomer was. 
On the other side, Eomer had no idea how they managed to stay hidden from the Rohirrim and th perhaps thought that they were elves. Before giving his real name, Aragorn challenged Eomer, asking who he serves. Are you friend or foe of Sauron? That's what he asked, point blank. At that time in history, the men of Rohan weren't at war with Mordor, nor were they friends of Mordor, and Eomer said as much. Then, in true heroic fashion, Aragorn threw off his cloak, brandishing his sword, Elendil. Aragorn challenged Eomer with an ultimatum. I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and am called Elisar, the Elfstone, Dunedain, the heir of Isildur, Elendil's son of Gondor. Here is the sword that was broken and forged again. Will you aid me or thwart me? Choose swiftly. Only after this much more dramatic scene than what we saw in the movie did Eomer tell Aragorn about the orcs. But just like the movie shows, Eomer didn't know about the hobbits. He only knew about the orcs that he slew. No hobbits were among them as far as he knew. It was only after this, in the book, that we see things from Merry and Pippin's side. And on that side, things happen pretty close to what we see in the movie. There are some small differences, like technically Pippin wasn't riding on the back of an orc when he lost the brooch that Aragorn found later, or threw down the brooch rather. He was on his own, but with orcs chasing him, he dropped the brooch in hopes that someone would find it. There wasn't much hope, though. Pippin was sure that the rest of the Fellowship went after Frodo. Thankfully, he was wrong. The brooch helped Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli know that they were on the right path. It is true, though, that Pippin and Merry managed to escape the chaos of the skirmish and make their way into Fangorn Forest. Speaking of which, one of the biggest changes in this scene that we saw in the movie was probably when the orcs cut down trees from Fangorn to start fires. In truth, it wasn't the orcs who did this. It was the Rohirrim who used the wood from, the, from Fangorn Forest to burn the bodies of the orcs that they slaughtered. Going back to the movie, it's inside Fangorn Forest, where Merry and Pippin run into a new character. As they're escaping from the orcs, the two hobbits climb a tree. Then, a hand reaches up and rips Merry from the tree. It's Grishnach, one of the orcs. Just as he's about to kill Merry, the tree Pippin is in comes alive. Then, it squishes the orc and swoops up Merry, holding both hobbits in his hands and pondering if they're just little orcs. Merry and Pippin are fascinated by Treebeard, He's voiced by John Reese davies the same actor who plays Gimli. They think he's basically a huge living tree. This he scoffs at. Tree? I am no tree. I'm an ant. The overall storyline is close, but there are some differences here. If you remember, Aragorn didn't know who Eomer was at first, so there's no way Merry and Pippin would have known the riders who were killing the orcs wouldn't finish them off when they were done. Terrified, they escaped to the forest while the orcs and Rohirrim were battling. None of the orcs actually made it into the forest after them, like what we saw in the movie. They were preoccupied with Eomer and his men, who eventually killed them all. Once in the forest, the two hobbits kept going. And going. They went as fast as their little legs could carry them, until, finally, their fear of orcs chasing them slowed. Then, they started to realize something. They had no idea where they were. As they were admiring the forest around them, that's when they heard a voice. Treebeard. And for the most part, the movie does a pretty good job of bringing him to life. He's not a tree. The movie is right there. But Ents look like trees, so I can see Merry and Pippin's confusion. Especially since, if you remember from the first movie, hobbits aren't prone to adventures outside of the Shire. 
going back to the movie, Treebeard doesn't know what to do with these little orcs that keep insisting they're hobbits or halflings. So he decides to take them to someone who will know what to do, the White Wizard. Mary ties that to a name right away, Saruman. If you remember from the first movie, the head of the Wizarding Order had proven to be in league with Sauron. Treebeard drops them off in front of the White Wizard, but the camera angle is from the wizard's shoulder, over the wizard's shoulder, so we can't see exactly who it is. That's not what happened. Perhaps it was because when Treebeard first met the hobbits, they were complimenting the forest. Or maybe it's that the hobbits posed no threat to Treebeard. Upon meeting, the hobbits and the ants seem to be much friendlier and with much more trust than what we see in the movie. Their conversation continued with Treebeard and the two hobbits explaining what hobbits are. So the movie got it right that Treebeard hadn't heard of hobbits. Speaking of something the movie got right, there's a brief moment in the movie where Pippin asks Treebeard whose side he's on. Treebeard replies that he's not on anyone's side because no one is on his side. Well, that conversation was changed for the film, but the basic gist is true. And it's important because that question was really a two-part question. Oh, and it was Mary who asked it, not Pippin. So Mary asked Treebeard whose side he was on, but also if he knew Gandalf. We don't really know why Mary asked this, but if we put ourselves in his shoes, it would make sense. Hobbits don't really venture outside of the Shire much, but they know Gandalf does. So if there's anyone Treebeard might know, it'd probably be Gandalf. It's not going to be Frodo or Sam or anybody, any of the other hobbits that they know. And he did. Treebeard replied that Gandalf was the only wizard who really cared about trees. Then Pippin remarked something like, he was a great friend. Treebeard noticed the past tense. Was? Why do you say it like that? Then Pippin let Treebeard know that Gandalf was gone, which confused him because apparently he hadn't heard the news. The two hobbits asked Treebeard if he could give them something to eat and drink since they'd lost their packs. He happily obliged. And even though we don't see this in the movie, the conversations continued as Treebeard carried the hobbits 70,000 end strides through the forest to his end house, where he offered them Entstraught to drink. Sorry, I can't really convert end strides to miles or kilometers. There, once they were at the end house, they rested, and Treebeard eagerly listened to the story of their journey so far. The hobbits, no doubt super excited to get the chance to tell their tale while feeling safe for once, took the time to recount their story to date. None of that is in the movie, although there is a brief moment in the extended edition of the film where we see the hobbits discover Entrot. It's probably worth pointing out that in the book, it's during these conversations that Treebeard was super interested in the activities of Gandalf and Saruman. And while the hobbits knew some about Saruman from the second-hand reports given through Gandalf at the Council of Elrond, they didn't know much. In fact, at one point in the conversation, Pippin asked Treebeard outright, who is Saruman? So that's a little different than what we see in the movie where Pippin quickly jumps to Saruman being the white wizard. And that's not the only thing about this scene that's quite different from the movie. But we'll come back to that. Hopping back to the movie's timeline, the next major plot point takes us back to Frodo and Sam. They're traveling in the dead marshes led by Gollum who they've let free from the rope, and he's become their guide in lands unfamiliar to Frodo and Sam, but well-traveled by him. That's true. 
Well, it wasn't daylight like the movie shows, but Gollum did leave Frodo and Sam through the dead marshes. Gollum didn't want to travel by day because, as he explained it, the yellow face shows you up. Translated, you're easier to see during the day. Oh, and it was Sam who fell into the marsh to see the dead faces, not Frodo like we see in the movie. After this, back in the movie, we're hopping back to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. They followed Merry and Pippin's tracks from the Rohirrim's battle with the orcs into Fangorn Forest. Almost immediately upon entering it, Legolas senses something. Calling to Aragorn, he says, The white wizard approaches. Like Merry and Pippin did before in the movie, they think it's Saruman too. But we see it's not. It's Gandalf. And here's where Gandalf tells the tale of how he fought the Balrog. When he finally defeated his foe, he nearly died, but awoke not as Gandalf the Grey, but as Gandalf the White. That's true, but there's more to the story. It was here on the edge of Fangorn Forest when Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli met back up with Gandalf. Shocked and happy to find their friend alive, Gandalf recounted the tale of how he fell from Durin's bridge to a place beyond light and knowledge. But Gandalf didn't kill the Balrog here. He utterly defeated him, extinguishing his flame and turning him into a slimy creature that Gandalf likened to a snake. But in the end, the Balrog fled in tunnels so far down in the earth that they have no name. So old, so deep, so dark, that there is no knowledge of when or how they were created. Then Gandalf climbed the endless stair from the depths to Durin's tower near Celebdil. If you're not familiar with Middle-earth's geography, that's one of three mountains above the dwarvish city of Khazad-dûm. Here, the Balrog erupted again, his flame renewed. The battle continued until, again, Gandalf emerged victorious, casting the Balrog from the mountain. After this, Gandalf seemed to have passed out. Very similar to what we saw in the movie, there was a bright light. Then nothing. When he awoke, he was naked and lying atop the mountain. His task here on earth was not done. Gandalf the Grey was now Gandalf the White. If this were a video game, he leveled up. Back in the movie, after Gandalf rejoins the party, he says they must head to Edoras and Rohan. Then we get to see his horse for the first time, Shadowfax. Pretty horse. Interestingly, in the movie here, if you pause it and look behind Ian McKellen's version of Gandalf as he whistles for Shadowfax, you'll notice that Legolas and Aragorn already have horses. The movie doesn't explain this right here at this point, but earlier, and I didn't mention this, but Aragorn, when Aragorn met Eomer, they get horses to head back to the site of the battle between his Rohirrim and the orcs. Then, when Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli venture into Fangorn Forest, they don't have horses. So the movie seems to imply that they left their horses here at the edge. But that's not true. Well, not really. They did leave their horses outside Fangorn. But when they re-emerged with Gandalf, their horses were gone. They must have run off. After Gandalf gives his long whistle, which we also see in the movie, that's when Shadowfax appears. But he wasn't the only one. Along with Shadowfax, who was described as the Lord of Horses, came with two other horses, the ones that they had before. Or at least, that's what I'm assuming, because when Legolas saw them, he knew the horses by name when they arrived. Oh, 
And Shadowfax ran all the way from Rivendell to find Gandalf. So it's not like he came just at the time of the whistle. But that's a minor detail. What is true about that scene is that Gandalf told them they must head to Edoras with great haste. Hence the need for the horses instead of walking. As a little side note, Gandalf actually also relayed a message from Galadriel to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. But that's not in the movie at all. Galadriel, if you remember, was the character played by Kate Blanchett. Back in the movie, after this, uh, Gollum leads the two hobbits to the Black Gates, Mordor's front door. Here, there's a close call where the two hobbits are nearly seen after Sam slides down the hill. But they hide under their cloak, which camouflages them in with the rocks. It's only after this, when Frodo is about to make a dash for the door, that Gollum tells them he knows of a different way into Mordor, a back door. That's sort of how it happened, but there were some changes made here for the movie. After emerging from the dead marshes, Frodo and Sam were exhausted. It was five days since Gollum had been guiding them, and the path was hardly an easy one. Even though the movie doesn't show it, they decided to rest by a pit. That's what they slid down, not the rocky mountainside-type landscape that we see in the movie. And it was Frodo who slid down the pit first, probably while he was sleeping. They spent most of the day resting, only continuing their journey to the Black Gate when evening began. Oh, and even though it's not in the movie, there's a moment here when Sam woke up from the nap he never really intended to take and heard Gollum talking to someone. It was himself, Smeagol. We saw this debate in the movie, but not until later on. They seemed to actually move it in the film. Sam overheard the debate as he pretended to sleep. He must not get the precious. He must not have it. But we hate the Bagginses. They stole it from us. Not this Baggins. Master is kind. Yes, all Bagginses. But there's two of them. They'll kill us. Oh, but she might help. Oh, no, we mustn't go that way. Yes, yes. Meanwhile, Sam wondered, who is she? So it would seem that Gollum had a bit of an ulterior motive with mentioning another route into Mordor. Although it is true that Gollum led them to the Black Gate and then talked Frodo out of going in, it was Sam who brought up the obvious question. Why did you bring us here then? Gollum's reply was something along the lines of, because Master asked us to. There wasn't a physical restraint like we saw in the movie when Gollum thrusts himself on Elijah Wood's version of Frodo as he tries to dash into the gate. In truth, Frodo asked Gollum to lead them to the Black Gate, so he did. We don't really know if Gollum made the assumption that Frodo wanted to go inside or if he was simply doing as he was asked. For his part, though, Frodo didn't know there was another way to get inside. Going back to the movie, next we see Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli riding into Edoras. The movie doesn't really say this outright, but Edoras, by the way, is the capital of Rohan. That's where, in the movie, the four companions meet with Bernard Hill's version of King Theoden. When they arrive, they're stripped of their weapons, but Gandalf manages to keep his staff, or walking stick as he calls it. That happened, but there's a big difference that's worth pointing out here. The movie doesn't mention this at all, but as they surrendered their weapons, they actually mentioned the lineage of those weapons. This is important because Aragorn's sword was none other than Narsil, which he commanded the soldiers at Rohan not to touch. Remember in the Fellowship of the Ring movie, 
When we see Sean Bean's version of Boromir cut his finger on the shards of Narsil while they're in Rivendell for the Council of Elrond, that is the same sword. The sword that cut the Ring of Power from Sauron's hand by Isildur, son of Elendil. Well, in the movies, it's not reforged until the third one, The Return of the King, but that really happened much earlier in the Fellowship of the Ring book. Back in the Two Towers movie, though, after entering the Golden Hall, it's clear Theoden isn't well. He's old, decrepit, and seems to be under the control of a spell. Meanwhile, Brad Dourif's character, Grima Wormtongue, acts as a sort of advisor to the king. But he's one of those guys that you can tell he's a bad guy just by looking at him. With the king under a spell, for all intents and purposes, it's Wormtongue who's running Rohan. That's not really what happened. I mean, it is, but not really. Let me explain. As the four companions entered the Golden Hall, they saw an old man sitting in a great chair at the other end. He had white hair and beard, similar to what we see in the movie, but his eyes were fierce, not glazed over like we see in the film. And while Bernard Hill's version of the king has a hard time speaking, the real Theoden had no troubles speaking forcefully, even arguing with Gandalf at one point. But Wormtongue was real, and did act as the advisor of sorts to Theoden. So that part is similar to what we see in the movie. And while there were too many subtle differences to name here and how it happens, the overall gist of what happens next is pretty close to what we see in the movie as well. By that, what I mean is that Gandalf throws off his cloak and raised his staff. Wormtongue is surprised. He told them to take the staff. The hall was cast into complete and utter darkness. The only thing visible was Gandalf the White. After Gandalf cast the hall into darkness, there was thunder and a flash of lightning. Then, dead silence. Probably, one of the biggest changes in the film here is that there's no mention of a magical transformation for King Theoden. Wormtongue was the advisor to the king and was paid off by Saruman to deceive Theoden. The movie's rendition of this part of the story seemed to play it up quite a bit, Quite a bit more than there was. Speaking of which, going back to the movie, after this, Gandalf leaves Edoras in search of Eomer and his Rohirrim. He promises to return in five days. Meanwhile, King Theoden decides to have the people of Edoras march to their stronghold, Helm's Deep. Built into the mountain, King Theoden believes that this is the best chance of a survival against an attack from Saruman. And... The attack is coming because we see Wormtongue hightail his way out of Rohan to Saruman, telling him what happened. That's when we see tens of thousands of orcs in his army. Their march to Rohan begins. That's not really what happened. Well, Gandalf was talking with Theoden about what to do with Grima Wormtongue. Gandalf suggested that Theoden call for Eomir. So Hama was sent to be a messenger a form of punishment from Theoden for not doing a good job as a door ward. Hama, by the way, is the guard who we see taking the weapons from the four companions before they enter the Golden Hall in the movie, and he's actually played by John Lee in the movie. In fact, Eomir was the one who handed Theoden his sword after Gandalf had his line suggesting that the king's fingers would better remember their strength if they grasped his sword. Then, as Theoden turned to face Eomir, he stood, no longer an old man leaning on a walking stick. So I know 
I said the magical transformation didn't happen for the king, but I suppose if it did, that would have been it. But even then, as we just learned, it didn't happen all at once like we saw in the movie. So if Gandalf didn't go off to find Eomer, remember, the king turned to face Eomer after he gave him the sword. So he was there in the hall. So if Gandalf didn't go off to find him while the rest of the group went to Helm's Deep, what happened? Well, they did split up, just not like what we see in the movie. Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli rode with Eomer and Theoden along with the forces of Rohan with the intention of defeating Saruman at Isengard. Left to lead the people of Rohan was Eowyn. She's played by Miranda Otto in the movie and was Eomer's sister, the children of Theoden's sister. This is a pretty big change because, as you can probably imagine, this means Eowyn wasn't at Helm's Deep with all of the women and children at Rohan. In fact, Eowyn's job was to lead the remaining people in Edoras to the hold at Dunharo. For some geographical context here, Dunharo is only about 20 miles or about 32 kilometers south of Edoras. On the other hand, Helm's Deep is maybe about 100 miles or about 160 kilometers to the west of Edoras. So you have mountains on either side going north-south, and then there's a gap between them. That's the Gap of Rohan. On the north side of that, the north mountains, or just under the mountains, right? So on the north side of the Gap of Rohan, there are the Fords of Aizen, and Saruman's stronghold nestled near the foot of the Misty Mountains. That's the mountains on the north side. And that stronghold is called Isengard because it's guarding the Aizen River, the, the River Aizen and the Fords of Aizen there. Then on the south side of the Gap of Rohan, you have the Fortress of Helm's Deep. Now, they're not uh, 100% north-south of each other, but they're fairly close. And because of the proximity, the close proximity to Isengard, that's where Gandalf, King Theoden, and the rest of the Rohirrim were headed. Going back to the movie, after this is when we see the scene where Sean Astin's version of Samwise Gamgee overhears Gollum and Smeagol talking to himself. But we already talked about how that was actually before Frodo and Sam were at the Black Gate. So let's jump ahead to the next major plot point. Oh, and before we do that, though, there's that meme famous scene with Gollum asking Sam, what's Tater's precious? Potatoes, boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Well, Sam did say the potatoes line, but he never really said the boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew line. Although the basic setup is pretty accurate around when it happened. If we overlook the fact that Sam had to ask Gollum to go find food, he didn't do it on his own. That would be as Sam was making stew from some of the rabbits that Gollum had found in the wilderness for the trio, much to Gollum's dismay at cooking them. After this, back in the movie, we witness a raid on Southern fighters where Sam sees an oliphant get attacked. Frodo, Sam, and Gollum are then captured by a band of men led by David Wenham's version of Captain Faramir. As they talk, we find out that Faramir was Boromir's brother. After finding out that Frodo has the Ring of Power, Faramir thinks that he can help save Gondor and decides to take them back to the White City, Minas Tirith. That's not how it happened. It is true that Frodo, Sam, and Gollum were captured by Faramir's rangers, but that happened before the attack on the Haradrim soldiers and their Oliphant. The Haradrim, or Southrons as they're called, since they're from southern Middle-earth, were enemies of Gondor. 
As for Faramir, well, his character is one that had a lot of people upset with how we see him in the film. You see, the real Faramir didn't have his men beat and torture Gollum. That goes against the nature of the men of Gondor, especially for a nobleman like Faramir. And then there's Faramir and the ring. One of the big differences in the movie here had to do with how the ring possesses those who, well, possess it. By that, what I mean is, in the movie, we see the ring have almost an instantaneous effect on those who even touch it. That's not really the case. In truth, the ring's power was much more subtle. It took, it took effect over a longer period of time, which is why everyone was so surprised at how Frodo and Bilbo were able to resist its power for so long. Despite this, though, Faramir never wanted to see the ring after capturing Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. While he did suggest taking them to Gondor, unlike what we see in the movie, he did not. Faramir let Frodo, Sam, and Gollum go on their way. Speaking of which, back in the movie, Aragorn arrives at Helm's Deep, much to the surprise and glee of those there. If you recall, he fell during the warg attack on the column headed to Helm's Deep, and everyone thought he was dead. That's when we saw the dream sequence with Arwen. That's Liv Tyler's version of Arwen. I didn't really mention that earlier because, well, that didn't happen. Neither did the warg attack where we saw Aragorn fall off the cliff in the movie. It would seem that all of this was actually added to throw in Aragorn's love interest into the movie when, in fact, Arwen is not in the Two Towers book at all. The filmmakers had the rest of the company arrive well beforehand so they could delay Aragorn's arrival so he could, in turn, have that dream sequence with Arwen. There's a brief scene in the movie where we see Viggo Mortensen's version of Aragorn come across the forces of Isengard marching. That's just before he arrives at Helm's Deep. So, if that didn't happen, when did Aragorn arrive at Helm's Deep? Well, he arrived with King Theoden, Legolas, Gimli, and the rest of the Rohirrim that left Edoras together. As the Rohirrim neared the Gap of Rohan, a lone horseman was seen in the distance. When he reached them, he gave them grave news that the hosts of Isengard have emptied. He said some of the men that were with him have fled to nearby Helm's Deep, while others were scattered. That's when Gandalf suggested they ride for Helm's Deep with haste. At this time, Gandalf split off saying he had to rush to an errand and would return to meet them at Helm's Gate. Back in the movie, after this, we're whisked across Middle-earth to Fangorn Forest where Merry and Pippin are still with Treebeard. It's time for the Entmoot, a meeting of Ents. In the movie, Merry and Pippin get frustrated with how long this takes. And it is true that an Entmoot takes quite some time, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Back in the movie, the battle is about to begin at Helm's Deep. Just before it does, though, a battalion of elven archers arrive to assist in the fight. Led by Craig Parker's character, Haldir, he tells Theoden that there once existed an alliance between men and elves. We are here to honor that alliance. That didn't happen. Oh, and there was a moment when Legolas wished they had elven archers, but none arrived. As a little side note, while the movie was inaccurate here in showing the elves at Helm's Deep, there's often a misconception that a lot of people argue about saying that this didn't happen because it was the age of men, so the elves were leaving the men alone. 
If you recall, in one of those dream sequences with Arwen, her father, Hugo Weaving's character, Elrond, comes and says the ships are leaving for Velenor. That's in line with something that he said in the Fellowship of the Ring movie, where the Age of Elves is ending and the Age of Men is about to begin. And so some people think that that's the reason why the elves didn't actually show up. That was the reasoning for why they didn't actually do it, even though we see that in the movie. But what he's referring to here is true, but it still caused some confusion. You see, he's not talking about this age. The third age, which is when all of these events are happening, that is not the age of men. What he's referring to is the fourth age. That's the one that comes after Sauron is defeated, if he is, and all the elves are gone because that last part is key there. All the elves are gone because it is true that the elves were leaving Middle-earth by way of the Grey Havens. That's the name of the ports in the Elvish Islands where the, the ships would take the elves to Valinor, a land beyond Middle-earth. So the point here is that there were no elves at Helm's Deep. Well, beyond the ones that came with King Theoden. Legolas, for example. Back in the movie, the forces of Isengard are standing outside Helm's Deep shouting and screaming as they waved their swords. Then, an old man on the wall accidentally looses an arrow. Everyone pauses while we see the arrow fly through the rain and kill an uruk Then, the battle begins. That's not how it began. In truth, it was the orcs who shot first. When they arrived outside the walls, they wasted no time in unleashing a cloud of arrows. Oh, and speaking of arrival, they arrived right on the heels of Theoden's men. As the battle rages on, back in the movie, we're taken to Fangorn Forest again to the Entmoot. Merry and Pippin eagerly await the decision. And then they find out that the Ents have agreed that the two hobbits are not orcs. All this time, and they haven't come to a decision on Saruman. Treebeard tells a frustrated Merry not to be hasty. He explains that Ents don't say anything unless it is worth taking the time to say them. That's true, but it's not something Treebeard said here at the Entmoot. In fact, Treebeard explained this when he first met the hobbits, that speaking in Old Entish requires time. So Ents don't bother taking the time to say something if there is not the time to say it. But with that in mind, yes, an Entmoot can take quite some time. Back at Helm's Deep in the movie, the battle rages on. We see a sort of game going on between Legolas and Gimli. They're each counting the number of orcs they kill. It's a competition. Although the character of Gimli we saw on screen was much more of a comedic relief than he really was, it's still true that he and Legolas had some sort of a competition going on at the Battle of Helm's Deep. From time to time, Gimli would call out his number, 21, to which Legolas would reply that he's already at two dozen. Then, heading back to the movie's timeline, the forces at Helm's Deep are seemingly holding off the invaders until they breach the wall with a massive blow. This is done through the sewer drain, something Wormtongue told Saruman about, and the use of gunpowder. That's sort of true, although the book never really explains the gunpowder. Well, for all we know, it's not gunpowder, and I guess the movie doesn't really call it that, but we can clearly see Saruman with a black powder in the book, none of that is explained. It simply came as a shock. All of a sudden, there was a flash of flame and smoke. Through what Aragorn called the devilry of Sauron, there emerged a gaping hole. Orcs poured in. The battle intensified. Oh, 
and in the movie, all we see are orcs. But in truth, there were more than orcs. There were hillmen allied with Saruman's forces who fought at Helm's Deep as well. While we're spoiling some of the things we see in the movie, remember that scene where we see Orlando Bloom's version of Legolas sliding down the stairs on the shield, shooting arrows as he goes? It didn't happen. Back in the movie, we jump away from the battle at Helm's Deep again, going back to the Entmoot. It's coming to an end, and according to Treebeard, they've decided not to partake. The Ents will not go to war. Then, as Treebeard is giving the two hobbits a ride to the north of Gorn, where they can make their way home, Pippin asks Treebeard to drop them off on the south side of the forest. That will take them past Isengard, which is exactly his plan. When they get there, Treebeard is shocked. The trees, they're gone. While building his army, Saruman has cut down many of the trees from Fangorn Forest. Angered, this is the final straw for Treebeard, who then calls the rest of the Ents to war. The basic gist of that is true, but that's not at all how that happened. So remember earlier when Pippin first met Treebeard and he asked the Ent who Saruman was? Well, in reply to that, Treebeard went on to explain what he knew of Saruman, which admittedly wasn't a lot since he hadn't kept up with the history of wizards. Except with Fangorn Forest neighboring Isengard, Saruman used to venture into the forest to chat with Treebeard. This is actually mentioned very briefly in the movie. But this is also what the Ent actually recalled to the hobbits. And as the conversation continued, it became clear that Treebeard was realizing that Saruman was the one who was letting more and more orcs into the forest. He was once a wizard who loved the woods, but that changed. His mind is made of metal, only caring for nature when it suits him. So the truth of it is that Treebeard was well aware of the destruction Saruman was doing in the forest. Remember, the Ents are, as the hobbits mentioned in the movie, essentially shepherds of trees. Knowing the details of their forest is literally what they do. It'd be silly to assume that Treebeard wouldn't have a clue about what Saruman was doing on the southern edge of Fangorn Forest. After Merry and Pippin relayed their stories, though, Treebeard was convinced Saruman must be stopped. So the Entmoot was about Treebeard convincing the other Ents to go to war, not Merry and Pippin convincing Treebeard about anything. Going back to the movie, things turned for the worst after the explosion that breached the wall. All hope is nearly lost for the soldiers at Helm's Deep when Aragorn suggests to Theoden that they ride one last time, surprise the orcs, and ride out to meet them head on. So they do. And just then, Gandalf the White reappears with Eomer's Rohirrim. These additional forces, coming from the other side, ends up turning the tide of the battle, allowing the men to defeat Saruman's forces. The basic gist of that was true, although it's important to point out wasn't Aragorn who suggested to Theoden that they ride to meet the enemy head-on. It was actually Theoden who suggested that. And when they did, it seemed to cause a lot more confusion than the movie made it seem. Oh, and remember when we learned that Eomer was actually in Helm's Deep the whole time? <laughs> that begs the question, if Eomer was there the whole time, and as we learned before, Gandalf did split off from the Rohirrim to run an errand, what errand did he run? Well, he did go off to get help. In the movie, that would be Eomer. But since he was actually at Helm's Deep, it could not have been him. In truth, Gandalf went off to get somebody who's not even in the movie. That would be Erkenbrand, the lord of the Westfold of Rohan. But just like we saw in the movie, this was the turning of the tide. With the sudden reinforcements, Sauron's army was overrun. 
back in the movie, the Ents have gone to war. And a glorious destruction they bring to Isengard. With all of the troops off at Helm's Deep, there's not many there to defend. The Ents even break down a dam to flood Isengard, killing the orcs left in defense. That's true, although there were some changes. For example, the Ents actually diverted the nearby river Isen after they killed or scared off all of the orcs. Oh, and one of the big differences is one that we already saw in the movie. Remember when Grima Wormtongue is uh, talking to Saruman and strategizing how to attack Helm's Deep? Well, that was actually when we saw the gunpowder, and we learned that didn't actually happen. It was only after the Ents attacked Isengard that Wormtongue arrived after being banished from Edoras. While all of this is going on back in the movie, we see Frodo and Sam at Asgiliath. That's where they went after being captured by Faramir. Here, still prisoners of Faramir, uh, Frodo almost succumbs to the ring and almost gets captured by a Nazgul flying overhead. Sam pulls him back just in time, and Faramir shoots an arrow at the Nazgul, saving Frodo. After this, still in the movie, Frodo and Sam are released by Faramir. That didn't happen. Well, the battle at Osgiliath happened, but it's just that Frodo, Sam, and Gollum weren't there. If you remember, earlier we learned that Faramir let them go after initially capturing them. He didn't take them to go back to Gondor with them. Going back to the movie, we see our heroes mounted on horseback, King Theoden, Eomer, Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn alongside Gandalf the White. It's Gandalf who speaks. Sauron's wrath will be terrible, his retribution swift. The battle for Helm's Deep is over. The battle for Middle-earth is about to begin. They look over the landscape at the wilderness beyond. Way off in the distance, thunder, lightning, a great fire, and darkness cover the land of Mordor. As Ian McKellen's narration continues, he explains that our hopes now lie with two hobbits somewhere out there. The scene cuts to Frodo and Sam being led by Gollum. They're walking through the woods. Then, as Frodo and Sam chat about whether or not their story will be turned into songs like so many that they've sung back in the Shire at home, we don't really notice Gollum disappear. Off to the side, Gollum and Smeagol have another chat with each other. This time, Gollum wins. But he's not going to kill the hobbits himself. Instead, both Gollum and Smeagol agree that they could let her do it. Then, hopping back out from behind a tree, Gollum starts leading Frodo and Sam again. Follow me. Many of the smaller details, like the conversations and such, were changed for the film, but... The overall gist is true. If there's one big difference in the movie here, it's that this is not how the Two Towers book ends. It didn't end with Gollum leading Frodo and Sam to her. Instead, if you remember, we already learned about the conversation where Gollum mentions her. So, in the book, we actually find out who she is and go through many of the scenes that were moved to the third movie. This is very much in the same way that many of the scenes from the beginning of this movie were intertwined with the ending of the last one. Alas, since this is where the movie ends though, this is where we'll end our story today. Just like we did with the movies, we'll have to wait to find out who she is. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. 
Now, I know we covered a lot in this episode, but there's even more details and little changes that we didn't even really get to cover. If you want to dive deeper into the story, of course, I would highly recommend picking up the books. That's really the best way to find out what was changed in the movie. And as an added bonus, you get to find out who she is without having to wait for the next episode of this podcast. I'll add a bunch of resources and more for you to dig deeper into the stories of Middle-earth over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, here's another five-star review. This one comes from Petra over on the Based on a True Story Facebook page, and it says, Superb podcast. I stumbled upon this podcast while browsing through the Acast app, and it's amazing. The way the episodes are designed with two truths and one lie and the way Dan professionally switches between movie and history is amazing. Even if you haven't seen all the movies, the episodes are great anyway, and every episode makes you want to listen to one more. For a history junkie like myself, this is one of the best podcasts ever. (laughs) Wow. Thanks so much, Petra. You know, when I first added the Two Truths and a Lie game, it really was I really wasn't sure how well it would go over. It's not like it's an original game by any means, but I thought it would just be a fun addition, something to kind of keep you interested in looking for things in the episode. So it's great to hear that you like it. I really appreciate that feedback. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen and even more so taking the time to leave a review and just let me know how much you appreciate the show that you have no idea how much that helps. All right, now it's time for the answer to the two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Frodo and Sam weren't released by Faramir. They escaped by Frodo using the ring to become invisible. Number two, it was not Gandalf and Eomer who came to the rescue at Helm's Deep. Number three, in the books, Boromir actually died at the beginning of the two towers and not at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number one. As we learned, the real Faramir wasn't anything like the character that we saw in the film. After his men captured Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, he actually released them before they left the cave and before Faramir returned to Osgiliath. Now, if you stuck around to this point in the episode, you're probably wondering, wait a minute, The Lord of the Rings isn't a historical movie? It's not based on a true story? Or actually, you're probably wondering that a long time ago, before you even started this episode, you saw the title. (laughs) Well, yeah, but today is April Fool's Day. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And don't worry, you'll have another regular episode of Based on a True Story coming out on its regular day, which is, if I look at the calendar here, it is tomorrow. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, uh, as we learned at the very beginning of this episode, tomorrow is the actual anniversary of this podcast. So maybe I'll do something a little special for that one, too. So... Have a great April Fool's Day and a great Easter since they both fall on the same day this year. And I hope you enjoyed this comparison of the Two Towers book with the movie. And maybe if the show is still around next year, we'll be able to finish up the trilogy. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.